Okay, we're going to begin here on the top of Samach Ben Amar Aleph. The Gemara begins Tanya. I'm a Rabbi Akiva. Pamachat Nasti Achar Rabbi Yeshua the Beit Akise. One time I followed my Rabbi Rabbi Yeshua into the bathroom. Lamarti Mimenu Gimel Dvarim. Learned from him three things. Number one, Lamarti Sheni Fnimi Mizrach Ma'arav that you do not defecate east west. That's based on the Gemara that we saw yesterday. Elatzafon Vidarom only north south. Lamarti Sheni Fraim Meumad El Miushav. One has to relieve themselves. They do it sitting down, not standing up. Lamaratish ain mekanchin biyamin that you're not allowed to wipe oneself with the right hand small with your left hand. The Gemara will come back and discuss this point. How could it be that you were so forthright to go in with your Rebbe to the bathroom? In Torah affects every aspect of one's life. Halacha is not relegated just to the religious realm. Halacha incorporates our entirety of our life, every action that we take, and therefore I need to learn. If I need to learn, I need to follow him in. So that's part of my learning process. Tanya, Ben Azai Omer, Pamachat Nichnasti Achar, Rabbi Akiva. So now Ben Azai, learning from Rabbi Akiva. Ben Azai, who was the one who questioned Rabbi Akiva before, now Ben Azai follows Rabbi Akiva into the bathroom. The Beit Akisei, Velamati Menu Gimel Dvarim. I learned from him three things. The same thing. Not east-west, but north-south. You can't leave oneself standing up, but rather sitting. Same three items. Oh, again, you're so forthright to go with your Rebbe to the bathroom. It's Torah and I need to learn it. What's interesting here is that this is Ben Azai and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is older than Ben Azai. We discussed this with Ben Zoma, Ben Azai. But also, according to the Gemara, Ben Azai was the son-in-law of Rabbi Akiva. The Gemara says that just like what Rachel did for Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva's daughter did for Ben Azai. Just like Rachel allowed Rabbi Akiva to go learn for 14 years, and they did home no problem, so too the daughter of Rabbi Akiva did the same for Ben Azai. Tosafot challenges that based on the Gemara. There's a Gemara in Yevamot, the Gemara in Ketuvot. Gemara says that Ben Azai never married. Because Libo Chashkaba Torah, he was so in love and connected to the Torah that he was unwilling to share that love with a human being. So how could it be that Gemara is saying that he married the daughter of Rabbi Akiva? So Tosavot says over there that he was mitares, he got engaged halachli to her, but never married her. The relationship here is interesting, but Ben Azai and Rabbi Akiva, both the Talmud, he also was at some point a son-in-law, a quasi-son-in-law, and they have a similar nature. That which Ben Azai questioned about Rabbi Akiva, then again, Ben Azai does himself to Rabbi Akiva is Rabbi. And now Rav Gahana, Al Gana Tute Puraya Rav. Rav Kahana went even one step further. He went and he laid under the bed of Rav. So he heard him speaking, laughing, joking around, and then being together with his wife, cohabitating. So Rav Kahana says to his Rebbe Rav, Wow, it sounds like you, Rav, that you never had this experience before. Something totally new to you. How could it be that you are so lighthearted in your speech and joking around and this and that with your wife? I'm like, Kana, what are you doing here, Rav Kana? Says, Pope, out of here. That is considered to be beyond the pill. That's not acceptable that you're here. It's Torah and I got to learn. I got to learn how to behave. So this concept is taken by Rav Kana to an extreme here in terms of understanding how their Rebbeim acted. They wanted to know not only how their Rebbeim acted with regards to a religious realm, but also in their everyday life, because Allah governs in all those areas. Torah, the life of Torah, is not simply relegated to the religious realm, but to one's entire life. And therefore, it was important to see just even in their base necessities and base activities, 
how they behaved, and that's what these Talmidim did. Right. Why is it that you're not allowed to wipe with your right hand, but rather with your left hand? So Amar Rava, now we're going to have a number of reasons I give here. Number one is, Because Torah was given with the right hand. So this week's Parsha coming up for Simcha Torah. That Hashem gave the Torah with his right hand. That it's close to the mouth. Close to the mouth means that they used to eat. They didn't have utensils. They ate with, they ate with their hands. So the hand that you're going to eat with is your right hand. So we don't want you using that or utilizing that for wiping. person puts on their tefillin on their left arm. And they tie the tefillin with their right hand. So it would be inappropriate to use the same hand for tying tefillin as one uses for wiping in the bathroom. Right. I, I don't know how to answer that. It's a very good question. It's the same thing by tying shoes. Right. So my brother asked me the same thing. I said it's Yad Keha. That drush in the Torah is Yad Keha. It's the weak hand that you place it on. And that's why the tefillin are on that hand. Really, they should be on your right hand. I mean, right arm is the stronger arm. But if you put tefillin on your right arm, then you wouldn't function all day. The whole point is that they were tefillin all day. In order to function all day, you need your right arm free in order to do what you needed to do. So you're filling on your left hand. The reason is that it's not the Right, but the Yad is that the Kshira, which is the Ikar part, is done by the right hand. That's what the Aniach Tfilin is, to be kosher the Tfilin, and that's done with the right hand, not the left hand. That's the best explanation I can have for why the right hand is more important, even though the Tfilin are on the left hand. So I would have read this simply as he points to, when he's learning Torah, that's it, he points to the place. He keeps a track of the place with his finger. Rashi is something very interesting over here. Rashi, it's on the last wide line in the Rashi at the top here. So these are the cantillation marks, the vowelization of the Torah. Nevi'im Ktuvim. Ben Benikud, Shebesefer. Whether it's the pronunciation because of the vowelization, or whether it's got to do with the sing-song, or the notes that come about from that. Listen to what he says. I saw those that read from Eretz Yisrael, that they don't simply just follow along, but their finger moves along with the sounds or the tune that goes with it. And it's similar to what some people do today with the signing for the truck that's there. But there was some sort of movement of the finger that equated to the proper truck or the proper sound at that point in time. What's the nafkamina between these reasons? One of the nafkamina between these reasons is about a lefty. Depending which reason that you subscribe to will make a difference for a lefty. So for instance, in the case of, we know the Torah is given with the right hand, it'd be irrelevant whether one was a lefty or a righty, because Hashem gave it with his right hand, irrespective of whether you're a lefty or righty. That would say that even lefties should use their left hand. On the other hand, all the other items focus on the utilization of a hand, which is kosher tefillin. Tefillin for a lefty on their right arm, they tie them with their left hand. Tamei Torah, pointed to with their left, not their right. All of these items would indicate that for a lefty, it would be just the opposite as opposed to a righty. Anybody who is tzanua in the Beit HaKisei, in the bathroom, in the privy, then he's saved from three things. From the snakes, scorpions, and from the sheidim. Others say that he'll have good dreams as well. Now remember that their bathrooms were outhouses out in the fields, and therefore there was a real risk or real fear of snakes, scorpions and other items being in the bathroom, and that was a real risk for them. So, it was this bathroom privy in Tveria, where two people, even if two people went together and entered there, even during the day, they were injured. And the Shedim were so powerful in that place, that things that normally would offset the power of the Shedim, which is daytime versus nighttime, two versus one, didn't work. Nevertheless, 
Rabbi Ami, Rabbi Asi, Rabbi Bey, Chad, 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 Lukudei, Lo Mitzake. Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi would enter alone, each individually enter in there, and they had no problems with it at all. So Amri Lahu Rabbana, No Mistafitu. Aren't you afraid? Aren't you a little scared of these Shedim that are there? Why do you enter in there alone without any precaution? Amri Lahu Anan Kabbalah Gemrin. We have a Misora about this issue, and therefore we don't fear. Kabbalah debate Kisei, the Kabbalah that we have about the bathroom is Tzniyuta, Vishtikuta, one who is very careful, and Tzanua, Vishtikuta, and silent in the bathroom, that is the protection of the bathroom. So Tzniyuta is that one doesn't uncover themselves too much, one acts in a Tzanua manner, doesn't have other people in there. Tzniyuta is one silent, one doesn't speak while they're in there. Those two things are important, and if you perform those two items, then the Shedim don't bother you. Kabbalah di Surei, we have a Kabbalah about what you're supposed to do with Isurim. Shtikuta omibai rachme. And one has to accept the Isurim that Hashem gives you and not be bo'it, as Rashi says. Not kick them away, not say, why me? Why is this happening to me? But one has to have an acceptance of those Isurim. Omibai rachme. And then you can daven. You can daven to Hashem to remove them or to ask for forgiveness. But those are the Misorot about Isurim and the Misorah about the Beit HaKiseh. Sorry, I don't have a lot. I'll tell you two things, and then I'll leave you with that. Number one is that with the advent or the advancement of science and, and lighting, that the idea of shedim and superstition seem to diminish significantly. Say one. And number two is that the Gemara M'sachim, always quote this Gemara M'sachim, says that if you are concerned about them, they bother you. If you're not concerned about them, they don't bother you. Right? Those are the two things that I can, the only things I can add. Otherwise, I don't have a lot of insight. Abaye's mother brought up a sheep, a young lamb, to accompany him into the bathroom so that he wouldn't be there alone. There would be a, some sort of protection for him in the bathroom. Wouldn't it be more appropriate to use a goat? It would be, I guess, a better animal to use, more trainable. So the Shedim were called Seirim. And since the Shedim are called Seirim, they could get mixed up with the Seir and Seir, so therefore she used the lamb. Rava Mikami Dahave Reisha Mikarshkeshalei Batrav Chista Amgoza Belakno. So Rava, before he became the Rosh Hashiva, his wife, who was the daughter of Rav Chista, used to put a nut inside of a metal container, and used to shake it to make noise to scare away the Shedim. But Tardamalach, after he became Rosh Hashiva, Avdalei Kavato, she made for her Kavato, she made for him a window between the house and the outhouse. Manchalei Yada Areshin, she used to put her hand on top of his head in order to afford him extra protection. Because once he became a higher authority, became a Rosh Hashiva, there was more risk from the Shedim, and therefore she needed to provide him extra protection. Tosafot over here discusses the dreams and interpretations of Bar Hadaya before, the Baradaya said that Rova's wife was going to pass away. That was one of the dreams that she had. Remember, he said, I forgive you for everything, except for Bat Rav Chista. Over here, you see that Bat Rav Chista is still around, right, at the time that Rova is the Rosh Hashiva. And Rova only became Rosh Hashiva after Abaya had passed away. So Tosfut says, oh, maybe she lived long enough to pass the point where Abaye had passed away. She outlived Abaye, but she didn't outlive Rava. That's what you have to say in order to try to reconcile between this Gemara and that which we saw before of Abar Hadayah. If you're behind a fence, one can relieve themselves right away. In an open field, if he releases gas and you cannot hear it, another person cannot hear it, then that's fine. You can go behind the fence, relieve oneself behind the fence, as long as the noise from relieving oneself will not be heard by another individual. You have to distance yourself enough that you can't be seen. So, is that really true? 
someone who goes out of the olive press, v'nifnim, achreageda, you go right, we leave yourself right behind the fence, v'hein teorim, then they remain tahor. We're talking about an olive press, the time of the olive press, there was a fear that the amearets would enter, who were tamayim, would enter in there, touch it, and then everything would become tamay. So you had to be on guard, on alert, that nobody entered into the olive press. So the individuals working there had to exit, because he had to relieve himself. So he goes to relieve himself, he's allowed to relieve himself behind the fence that's nearby the Beit Abad, and the Tarot to remain Tahor, because he's close enough to see or hear what's going on. Where it says, Bitarot Ekelu. That's a Kula by Tarot, that they allowed him to relieve himself so close by that he could still see or be within the sound distance of the Beit Abad. Tashma. Kama Yerchakuviyu Torim. How far can they distance themselves from Tarot? So as long as you could see it. If you could still see the Tarot, or you can still see the Beit Abad, then we don't worry about something becoming Tamei. But again, you're within eyesight of the Beit Abad, or within eyesight of the Tarot, and that is permitted here to leave oneself in that location. Where it says again, Shani Ochle Tarot, Tekilubu Rabbanon. Again, for the sake of Tarot, the Rabbanon were made in these cases to allow you to relieve yourself closer in order to prevent their problems with Tarot. You said before that as long as you can be seen, that's not a proper location. So we took that literally. But that may not be the case, Ravashi says. When we say, that qualification of Isi Barnatan, you can't be seen at all, is that's not that he can't see the individual at all, that he can't see the person relieving themselves. You could still see the individual, but you have to be far enough away that you can't discern that this individual is relieving themselves. So the distance of sight is not like we thought before that to be out of sight, could be that you're within sight, and that would answer our problem with regards to the two cases of Tarot. You're within vision, but you're not close enough where the person could discern or see that you're relieving yourself. House of Dana, the Nachid Kameh Rav Nachman. There was this eulogizer, and in their day it was a profession. They were professional eulogizers. They went before Rav Nachman, Amar He was eulogizing an individual, and he says, this individual was Tzanua in his ways. Spoke about a person who had been niftar. So, Amalei Rav Nachman, at Ayolot Bahadei, the Beit HaKisev, Yadat, Itzanua Yilo. How could you make such a statement? Did you follow me into the bathroom to know whether he really was Tzanua or not Tzanua? The Tanya, because they have a bright day in Korim, Tzanua, Lamisha Tzanua, Beit HaKisev. To attain the title of Tzanua, the qualification for that is being Tzanua and Beit HaKisev. So he says to the Sabdan, he says to this eulogizer, how could you make such a statement without having the knowledge? The Rav Nachman might not me, no. What's the difference to Rav Nachman? Whether he really was Sanua or not Sanua, why is Rav Nachman so concerned about what the eulogizer said? Mishum Detanya is very interesting. Kashem Shnifraim Mina Meitim. Just like the Meitim get punished. Kach Nifraim Mina Sabdanim Umina Onim Achreham. So too they take retribution on people who eulogize and are not truthful in their eulogies. Meaning that we know that when it comes to the has spade. We not necessarily tell all the truth. We try to focus on the good of the individual. But here the Gemara says that you can't just simply make things up. You cannot exaggerate or go beyond what was true about the individual. So it seems that the eulogies in their day were somewhat responsive. So there was either says answering of Amen or acknowledgement, affirmation of what was said by the eulogizer. If that's the case here, then everybody's held accountable. Not only the one who eulogizes, but those that hear the eulogy and do not object to the fact that what's being said here is untrue. Very interesting about a eulogy that one has to be careful to be on the path of truth, or at least close to the truth when they eulogize, and not to step too far away from the truth. Who is considered to be Tzanua? That a person who leaves himself at night in the same location they would relieve themselves during the day. Understanding being that during the daytime where it's light out, you would have to distance yourself significantly more 
in order to leave yourself, in order to be in a private location and not to be seen by others. So at night, if you go to that same location, that's someone who's tzanua, because it's not necessary at night to go that far. Ini, is that really true? Person should relieve themselves, have be accustomed to relieve themselves early in the morning and in the evening when it's dark out, so that they don't have to distance themselves. The indication, the implication being that when it's dark out, you do not have to go as far as when it is light out. Bitu, rova biyomama hava azra and mil. During the day, Rav would distance himself at least a meal before he relieved himself. At night, he would say to his attendant, to the one who was serving him, Clear me out of place along the street. I'm relieve myself. I mean, as long as there were people there, then he would go to the bathroom there. Rizera said the same thing to his servant, to his attendant. Go see who's behind the Beit Midrash, who's behind the building, because I want to relieve myself over there. So the implications being that one does not have to distance themselves at night. So how could it be that the bright though that we're bringing is suggesting that there's a necessity at night to distance oneself the same amount they do during the day. Don't say that you have to distance yourself to the location, but rather the similar way. Similar way that you do it during the day, that one is tsanua, so too at night one should act with the same sniyut, even though it's not visible. A person should not uncover themselves too much. A person should do it in a location where there aren't people around. So even at night one should take the same precautions, take the same actions in sniyut that they would during the daytime. But Vashi says, no, a filu of makom. Even if you say literally the same location, to a corner, a place where during the daytime, even there, it would be private. So a location where a person would go to the bathroom during the day, then they can go there at night as well. But it's a Karen Zavit, it's a location that already has privacy during the day. A person at night should take precaution to go to that same location, even though at night they could do it in a closer location. Nevertheless, they should go back to that location, which is always private. Kufa. person should relieve themselves early in the morning, late at night, so they do not have to distance themselves. A brighter that supports this, get up early in the morning and go to the bathroom, come back at night in the evening and go to the bathroom. One should, when they want to check their bowels or to stimulate going to the bathroom, they should do that first and then afterwards sit down. One should not sit down first and then only then check. Because anybody who acts in that way, even if they're performing sorcery in Spain or far out places, they will be successful. What happens if he forgot? And he sat down. And then he did that. What's the offset to that? How do you protect yourself in that situation? When he stands up. Not about me. Not about me. And as Rashi points out, these are the names of the kshafim, of the sorcery, that affects the taktaniot, that affects the rectum or the bowels. And... Lohani, Vlomahani. Not these and not of these. Locharshe de Harsha, Vlocharshe de Harashto. So as Rashi translated, not the sorcery of the sorcerers and not the sorcery of the sorceresses. I mean whether it's a woman or a man performing the sorcery, it shouldn't affect me over here. Tanya Ben Azayomer. You can lay down on anything, except on the ground. You can sit down on anything, except for a beam. seems to be that the fear on the ground was that maybe he would be attacked by a snake, by a scorpion, he'd be affected by animals that are on the ground, so don't lay on the ground. And don't sit on a Korah. Rashi says here, you might fall off, the Korah might break. So these are just uh, safety precautions. So over here, we have in our Gemara, the Girsa Shina, We'll see in one second why that doesn't make sense. I'll translate it that way, and then I'll come back and show you why it doesn't make sense. Shina Bamuda Shachar, one who's asleep at dawn, 
It's like a steel edge to iron, which would mean that it was efficacious or was positive. One who goes out at Amod HaShachar, over here, the implications being to relieve oneself, it's like a steel edge to iron. So obviously the two statements are so tear each other. One, it says that if you're sleeping at that time, it's good. The other one says if you go out at that time, it's good. So the word Shena cannot be the proper word here. If you see on the side, the Oroch, in his translation of Istama, says that the word over here is from the word Hishtaneh, or the term for that Gemara uses for urinating. So over here, the first statement would be Hishtanot, which would mean to urinate, and the second would be Yitziah, is to defecate. So to urinate at Amod HaShachar and to defecate at that time period is positive. To do it very early in the morning, that's a good thing. Barbara Kapara have a mezavin mile bidinari. Barbara Kapara used to sell sayings for a dinar. He used to have wise sayings, wise advice to give. And people used to pay him a dinar and he used to get this advice. Right, a penny for my thoughts. So now here they are. Here are some thoughts that you get for free. While you are still hungry, eat. While you're still thirsty, drink. While your pot is still hot, pour it out. As Rashi says, this is a euphemism for while you have the need to relieve oneself, they should relieve oneself. When they blow the trumpet in the shuk in Rome, bar a son of someone who sells figs, go out and sell. Won't you go out and sell the figs of your father? It seems to be that this is a chastisement to those who are lazy and don't go out and do things in their proper time. They're procrastinating. So when the shuk is open and the buyers are there, one should be present in the shuk selling. You don't come after everybody's left. You come out when it's the proper time to sell. So that's the point here, that when they blow the trumpet and all the buyers are coming to buy the Tainim, the son of the person who has figs should be there selling the figs. He shouldn't be waiting around. He shouldn't be lazy. And some suggest this is an overarching qualification of everything that was said before. When you have a sensation or a feeling, you should take care of it right away. If you're hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. If you have the urge to go to the bathroom, you should relieve yourself at that time. And it's a general statement about not letting the moment pass. When you go on the paths of Mechuzah, to go out to the fields, do not look right, do not look left. Because maybe there are women sitting on the sides of the street. And it's not appropriate or proper to look at those women. The Gemara doesn't make it clear here whether the inappropriateness of looking at the women was because the women were leaving themselves in these narrow streets that were out towards the fields and therefore they're outside of the city. Or that for some reason these women were not dressed appropriately. And since they were not dressed appropriately, that would also be something that they shouldn't be looking at. Rav Safra al-Beta Kisei. Rav Safra went into the bathroom. Atta Rabbi Abba. Rabbi Abba approached the bathroom, the privy. Nochale Abba. Either he banged or knocked on the door, or Nochale means he cleared his throat by the doorway to indicate that he was there. So Amrle Rav Safra says to him, come on in. Butter the Nafak. After they left, Amrle, so Rabbi Abba says to Rav Safra now, Ad Hashuloi Ailit Lissair. Until this point in time, the Shadim haven't gotten a hold of you. Gemar the Chamili Lissair. You act like the Shadim. You act with lack of Tzniyut. We said before that the proper way to conduct oneself in the bathroom is to be silent. Number one. And number two is the Bitsanua. And over here, you lacked both of them. Number one is, you allowed me to come in while you were still in the bathroom. So there were two of us in the bathroom, that's a lack of sniut. Number two is, when I came to the bathroom door, I didn't say anything, I just cleared my throat or knocked. And you responded and said, come on in. So those two things are a lack of sniut, and I can't believe that you've survived this long with that lack of sniut. So he says, don't we have a Mishnah? Midura haita sham. There was a pyre, there was some sort of fire 
And there was a bathroom of kavod. What was the kavod? What was the honor of this bathroom? If he found the bathroom door locked, he knew somebody was in there. He didn't have to knock. He didn't have to go in. If he found it open, he knew that there was nobody in there. You see that it's not proper either to be there together. That's why the locked door indicated someone was there, someone wasn't there. Or number two is that you don't need to speak. You don't have to ask if someone's there because the door locked gives you indication that there's someone there. So then what was Rav Safra thinking when he answered over here? Msukanu. He thought that Rabbi Avo had to relieve himself very badly. And because of that, he was in danger. There was a medical emergency for him not to relieve himself. Tanya, we have a bright so a person who holds themselves in and does not relieve themselves, does not defecate, that holding in of the feces causes hadrokun. Hadrokun is dropsy or some sort of disease. Silonochuzer, someone who does not urinate when they have the urge to urinate and holds it in, that urine will cause them lidei jaundice. Rabbi Lazar entered into the bathroom. Atahu parsa. The way our Gemara is written, it says a Persian here. I'll show you why at the end of the Gemara that that cannot be the girsa in the Gemara over here. Ahu parsa. This Persian dachakei basically chased him out, pushed him out. This is how I'm coming in, and Rabbi Lazar had to leave. So kam Rabbi Lazar He left because he had no choice here. Ata darkona veshamte lekarkishe. Along comes a serpent and basically takes out the bowels of this Persian individual. Karle Rabbi Lazar veatena dam tachtecha. I will place a replacement for you in that location. So that should have been the end of the Gemara based on the gears that we had here. But the the gears that we had, there was this Persian individual came in and replaced Rabbi Lazar. Rabbi Lazar was protected because this individual was killed instead of him. And that would be the end of the pasuk based on Yeshayahu veatena dam tachtecha. But the Gemara continues and says, Al-Tikri Adam El-Edom. But don't read it as Adam, but rather Edom. Why is that relevant over here? The only way that's relevant, if we were talking about Edom or Esav, the descendants of Esav, which the Gemara associated with Rome. So if that's the case, the Girsa above should have been Hahu Roma. That was censored later on. It was that Roman came and pushed Rabbi out of the bathroom. And then the end of the Gemara makes sense. There's Al-Tikri Adam El-Edom. And that why there will be a reference to the Roman, uh, that it's Edom and not Adam. Gemara moves on to a story by David Melech and Shaul. So the story is, this is the broader story, we're going to touch on pieces of it, is that David Melech and his men were hiding inside of a cave. Because Shaul Melech is chasing them down. He wants to kill David, he's chasing David, they are hiding inside of a cave. Shaul on his return from searching for David, he has to relieve himself, he has to go to the bathroom. So he moves off the derech and he goes into a cave on the side of the road and relieves himself inside of the cave. It just happens to be the cave in which David and his troops are found. So he relieves himself inside of there and David Amalek now has the opportunity to kill Shaul. And all of his men encourage him to go and kill Shaul. David says something noble and unbelievable. He says, Chos shalom, that we should touch Mashiach Hashem. We cannot touch the one who's anointed by God. We cannot set our hand upon it. David does that twice. When he has the ability to kill Shaul, he says to his men, over here he says to his men, do not touch him. There's another instance with Avishai ben Surya. He and Avishai ben Surya descend into the camp of Shaul. He takes away his knife, his dagger that's there, and the water bottle of Shaul. And again, Avishai says, let's kill him. And David says, we will not touch the Mashiach Hashem. So in two instances, David does this. It's an unbelievable statement, noble beyond belief. But do you want to know what's great, the greatness of David HaMelech? This really speaks to the greatness of David HaMelech. And in both instances, he has the ability to kill Shaul, and he does not. In the first case, by the cave, he cuts off the corner of his baguette to show Shaul that he had the ability to kill him, and that he didn't do it. In the latter case, he took the dagger and the water bottle, 
And then he says, look, I have it, so it's clear that I could have killed you. So that's what the Gemara is saying over here. David Amelch then exits the cave after Shaul has relieved himself, goes back to his troop. He says, Vamar they said to kill you, and they had uh, rachamim on you. The Gemara says, Va'omar, what do you mean Va'omar? Va'omar timi Right, it should have been that I said. I mean, David Amelch was there himself. He was there in person. He's the one who cut the baguette. He could have killed Shaul. What does it mean that? Va'omar Va'omar, it should be Va'omarti. So Va'tachas, it should be Va'chasti. It should be in the first person. Mibayalei, not in the second person. Why is David speaking in second person when it was he himself who took the action? So, Amar Rabbi Lazar, Amar Lo, David Shaul, Mena Torah, Ben Harigata. From the Torah, you're warranting death. Shairu Deifata. In terms of David Amelech, Shaul was classified as a Rodeif. As we explained before in the Daf, that someone who is trying to kill you, you have the ability in defensive position to be preemptive and kill them, to stop them from killing you. Shaul is chasing David, is going to kill David if he finds him, David had the right to kill Shaul to prevent Shaul from killing himself. So he says, Someone who comes to kill you, you take the preemptive step of killing them. But because of the tzniyut that you had, that's what brought rachamim on you. So the chasalecha is not that David says, I was merachim on you, but the way you acted was what caused us to be merachim on you, because you were so tzanua in relieving yourself. He went off the derech, he went into a cave, and the Gemara is going to explain that. Umahi. Tiftiv. says, Vayavoel gidrot he reached the fences of the tzone, meaning that some sort of hold for the tzone, ala derech, visham mi'ara, and there was a cave. Vayavoel Shaul ha'seichet raglav, and Shaul goes off the derech into the cave in order to relieve himself. And the Gemara says, Tana, geder, lifnim in a geder. Why is it gidrot in the plural? To say that there was a fence within a fence. Meaning he went behind two fences. And there was a cave within a cave. Because it was so tzanua that he pulled himself off the side of the road. So for that reason, uh, David had rachamim on him, or Hashem put in David's mind to have rachamim on him. So Amr of Elazar This is Minyana Dioma, that he covered himself with his garment like a sukkah. That he was tzanua, even though he was behind two fences, inside of two caves, he still, when he relieved himself, he didn't just do it openly in the public, he covered himself out. He made a tent over himself. With his baguette, and he relieved himself. David, David cuts off corner of the baguette of the meal, the cloak of Shaol, Balat, secretly. Anybody who is light-hearted with the bigadim doesn't treat them properly. In the end, they do not take care of him. The end of David's life is the famous Midrash. As David ages and becomes older, he cannot warm himself. He covers himself in clothing and he doesn't get warm. And that's where we have the story of Vishag Shunami that they bring in Vishag to warm him up because the clothing's not helping him. The Gemara associates the fact that the clothing does not help him to be warm from the fact that he was mivazet, the cloak over here, that he cut the cloak of Shaul here, and he did not treat the beggar of the cloak properly. Uh, two reasons over here. One is that, remember, in their day, clothing was extremely expensive. And everything was handmade. It wasn't simple. If you cut a cloak, that was a serious breach in terms of taking one's clothing. It wasn't usable, maybe, anymore. It had to be taken care of. That's number one. Number two is, David's whole reason for not attacking David was that he was Mashiach Hashem. The cloak he's obviously wearing is the cloak of the king. And yet he's willing to cut the cloak of the king. The posuk right afterwards says that David regrets cutting the cloak right away. He said after, as soon as he cut it, he felt bad about cutting the cloak. So you see, David has regret about that, that it wasn't appropriate to cut the cloak as well. All right, the Gemara continues. So, Im Hashem if it is Hashem who has stirred you up against me, this is David speaking to Shaul, then Yarach Mincha, he should take, accept my Mincha, 
as a supplication. This is the second story that I told you before. The second story where David and Abishai go down into the camp of Shaul. They take his chanit, they take his dagger. Then David goes back up onto the top of the mountain and calls down. And calls to Abner Bener, the Sartzaba, the general of Shaul's army, and says to him, You are Ben Mavet. You guys are worthy of death. You did not protect your master. Here we came down. We have his dagger. We have his water bottle. And we did not protect him. And as you hear, part of the speech that David makes is, Im Hashem esitcha bi. Hashem was the one who called you now to chase after me. Yerach mincha, you should accept my mincha. And then he continues on with his speech. But the Gemara here is playing on the word hesitcha. Hesitcha is, sounds like Hashem caused Shaul to go and do this. So I'm Rabbi Lazar, I'm Rabbi Koshbrach, David, you're calling me one who is an instigator, one who causes a Shaul to do this? I'm going to cause you to have a mistake or trip up or fail in an area where even kids learning in the Beit Midrash would know this. When you want to count, enumerate, you have to do it through a monetary donation, you have to do it through the Machetzit HaShekel. Miyad. We have this in Divrei Yamin. Gemara is going to jump back and forth between the story in Divrei Yamin and the story in Shmuel. It's the same story that's told in both places, but they're looking for specific words, and therefore sometimes they pick Divrei Yamin, sometimes they pick Shmuel. Satan al Israel. Satan came to see what he could do in order to provoke a problem within Kal Yisrael. Uchtiv, and then it says in Shmuel, "Vayasated David bahem lemor," and he instigates or he causes David. To do something wrong, saying, Leich b'nei b'nei Israel. Go ahead and count b'nei Israel. And obviously, Yolab ben Suriah, the general at the time, says, Don't do it, don't do it. He objects to it, and David presses him, nevertheless. Gave him the And when he does count them, they cut them straight out. They do not take a machatzi de shekel, they don't do it through. Pidyon kesef Dichtiv. And how do we know that? Vayiten Hashem dever b'Israel ma'boker v'adet mo'ed. Hashem punishes them with pestilence from the morning until eight moed. The Gemara wants to know, my eight moed, what does it mean? Until the appointed time. What's the appointed time? I'm a Shmuel Saba, Chodnei de Rabbi Hanina. Shmuel Saba, the older Shmuel, who was the son-in-law of Rabbi Hanina, in the name of Rabbi Hanina, Meshaat, Shechita Tatamid, Adshat Zrikato. From the time of the Shechita of the Tamid, which is the Boker, until Zrikato, the Zrikat Adam of the Tamid, that's the eight moed. Rabbi Yochanan at Chatzot Mamash. Until Chatzot, which would be the end of the Korban Tamid, the last time period, according to the Chachamim, that you could bring the Korban Tamid is Chatzot, and that means eight Moed, the appointed time. So now the Gemara parses the Pasuk a little differently. The Malach who destroyed amongst the people many. Here we're jumping pieces of the story. Gada Navid comes to David and says to David, you have to make a choice now. Hashem's going to punish B'nai Israel. You have to make a choice about what punishment you want. David El Gad. That's what we say in Tachlan every day. David responds to God that I'd rather fall beyond Hashem, beyond Adam. I'd rather fall into the hands of Hashem and not to the hands of Adam. And therefore Hashem sends a dever, sends a death to the people. I mean that there's a certain plague that comes and the people are dying. So there we have a Yomar Hashem speaks to the Malach who is killing many. I mean that many. That's the way to read the puzzle. The Gemara is going to read parts of the puzzle and say, Amr Take one of the big guns. That we take from him, that we can take from that one person, will be equivalent of taking many. At that moment, Avishai ben Surya died. Which he was equivalent to the robe of the Sanhedrin. You know, he's a big gun, both in David's army, as well as the Gemara always looks at David's army as also being made up of Tamidei Chachamim. And Avishai bin Tzuriah dies at that moment, and that's what it means, take someone rav, take a big gun from there. And it says over here, Ubehashrit ra'a Hashem v'inachem. Truthfully, in the Pasuk, it does not say that. It does not say bet, but it says chaf in the Pasuk. It says, Ubehashrit. The truth is, it means the same thing. It means Ubehashrit. 
But the Pasuk itself, Hashem sees it, and he has regret, meaning that he has remorse about it, and he wants to stop it. My Ra'ah, what did he see? Amarav Ra'ah, Yaakov Avino, he sees Yaakov Avino, Dichtiv, Vayomer Yaakov, Kashir Ra'am. The play on the word Ra'ah, Ra'ah, that Yaakov, when he sees them, so the seeing over here, it sees that he saw Yaakov Avino, and that's what stopped Hashem from continuing to kill amongst Bnei Israel. Shmuel Amar Efro Shel Yitzchak, he sees the ashes of Yitzchak. Ra'ah, Shenemar, Elukim, Yer Elo, Haseb Bnei. So there again, the play on the word Ra'ah, that that refers to that Yitzchak being brought up as a korban. That's what he's seeing. Rabbi Yitzchak Nachamar Kesef Kipurim Ra. He saw the machatita shekel that Bnei Yisrael already paid in the midbar because it says over there Shneimar Lakachta Kesef Kipurim Eight Bnei Yisrael. You'll take the Kesef Kipurim Bnei Yisrael the zikaron. That will be a zikaron. What do you mean a zikaron? What's a zikaron? Meaning that it'll be preventative in the future. That it'll be a kapara for the future. What is a kapara in the future? Is that it'll take care of this instance? Rabbi Yochanan Amar Beit Hamikdash Ra. He saw the Beit Hamikdash Tiftiv Bahar Hashem End of the Akedah when we're talking about the mountain Haramoria in which the Akedah is performed. Over there it says that's the mountain on which Hashem will be seen. Hashem Yireh. So again, that's the mountain where the Mikdash is. That's a reference to the Mikdash. One of them says that he saw the pigeon, the Machtir Hashem, the Benesel, given in the Midbar. Makes more sense according to the one who says the Beit Mikdash. And it said today, meaning that the name of the mountain where the Mikdash is, Hashem Yireh, will be seen on that mountain. Right? Will appear or will be seen on that mountain. The pasuk there is a very, very difficult pasuk. It says Hashem Yireh, and then he switches it to Hashem Yireh. So all the mefarshim, all the rishonim, try to deal with the fact that what does it mean? But again, it's written Yireh will appear in the future, which means that that is a constant, something that will always be there as a protection. And therefore, you saw the mikdash, and that was a protection because. But they don't give you here the information. They don't give you here is where's the satan stopped. The satan is stopped in the field of Aravna Yibusi, and that's where the malach stops in the Aravna Yibusi's field, which is where David Amelach purchases the land to build the Mizbeach and the Mikdash from. So that's where he stops. So in the context of the Psukim, they don't give you all that part of the Psukim, but in the context of that parak, the last parak in Shmuel Bet, where the Satan stops in the field of Rabna Yibusi, it makes sense. That's where David sets up the Mikdash later on. And so the connection between the two seems obvious now that he stopped because he saw the Mikdash. person may not enter on the Arabite with his staff, with his money belt, or his shoes on. My Kapandria. The Mishnah also said, you know, may not make a kapandria out of harabayit. Amarava kapandria kishma. It's a word. The word is like it means. So he uses it as a contraction. Rava says, it's like it means. It's the word. Kapandria. Kapandria had a meaning, had a colloquial meaning, and that's what it meant. Here, Rav Chanan Ba'ada suggests that it's a contraction of this statement, which is, Adam Ekifna Adare, until you go around these houses, Eo go through this one. Both of, both of them indicating a shortcut. That it means a shortcut. Do not make Harabait into a shortcut. You remember, Ir David is found below Harabait. The upper city is above that way. The way to get from one to the other would be to cut through Harabait. That would be the easiest way to get through them. It's to go from the eastern side of Harabayit through to the western side of Harabayit. That would be the easiest way to actually access the upper city. But the Gemara says, don't make it into a kapandria. Don't do that. Don't do that. You have to actually go around the Harabayit to circumvent it, which would mean that you would have to actually ascend a very, very difficult staircase to get up to the upper city. If you went up on the Harabayit, you would be able to use the bridges that went across to the upper city. So that's why they say, do not make it into a shortcut. Amar of Nachum, Amar of Neset. So now, what is the application by a shul? Here we have the application by Mikdash and Harabayit, 
What's the story when it comes to a shul? One who enters into a shul without the intent to make it into a shortcut, they may use it as a shortcut. So if you enter from one side of the shul, then when you're exiting the shul, you do not have to go back out the way you came. If it's closer for you to go home from the other side of the shul, you may exit from that side of the shul. So for instance, if a shul has an entrance, but has multiple exits, even though you entered from one side, you can exit from the other side. Even though it's a shortcut for you to enter and exit that side, that's not problematic because you did not enter the shul with intent to make it into a shortcut. It just happens to be. Now that you've been in the shul, it's easier for you to exit that side. If there was already an easement on this location where people already crossed through there and you build a shul on top of that, then you have to allow people to continue to cross through the shul because you can't take away the right of the public by putting up the shul there. And therefore the easement or the path being there first gives them the right to pass through there. So the same thing that we saw before was that a person who enters into Davin can make it into a shortcut. Again, making it into a shortcut here is not with the intent of making it into a shortcut, but he went into Davin, and now he can go out. The gear so that we have, and the riff has, is that it's mitzvah la soto kupandra. It's actually a mitzvah to exit from the opposite side. Don't go out the same way you came in. Why? Because of the proof pasuk. Again, vigomer, they put etc. there. The remainder of pasuk in Yechezkel says that whoever entered from the southern gate would exit from the northern gate. Whoever entered from the northern gate would exit from the southern gate. So wherever you entered from, you exited on the opposite side. It could be an indication of both. One, they came to the Mikdash, and then they'll exit on the other side. So it can be simply that if you came into Davin, you can exit on the other side. Oh, this is Yechezkel. This is Yechezkel. It's talking about people entering from both sides. They enter from both the south and the north. So it's not like you're indicating... So the way Mishnayot describes is that everybody entered from the same side, and then and went around. Over here, we're talking about people entering both from the north and the south, and they exit on the opposite side. So it could either be a proof that if you came to Davin, you can exit on the other side, or it could be a proof to the way the gears of the Rif and the Rosh, which is mitzvah, that when you enter from one side, you must exit on the other side, on the opposite side. Okay, one should not spit on Harabait from a Kavachomer. Anybody who spits on Harabait today, today meaning after the Korban, it's as if he spits into the pupil of the eye. Hashem says about the location of the Mikdash, after Shlomo Melch Davins, that the Shekhinah should be Shoreh in the Mikdash, then Hashem responds. This is Hashem's response to Shlomo's Tefillah. He says, I will always be here. I will always be in the Mikdash. My heart and my eyes will always be here. That means even when there is no Mikdash. Not just when they make Dash, the location of Haram Moriah is the presence of Hashem, the presence of Hashem exceeds the physical building of the Mikdash. And therefore, even when the Mikdash is destroyed, you cannot spit up there. That's uh, it's inappropriate. Amarava, Rikika, Bebeit Knesset, Sharia. One can't spit inside of a Beit Knesset. Just like shoes. You're not allowed to walk with shoes on Harabayit. Bebeit Knesset, Mutar. You can walk it with shoes to a shul. Afrikika, Baharabayit, Hud, Asur, Bebeit Knesset, Shari. So too, spitting on Harabayit is restricted, but in a shul it's not. I mean, there are some people here who might be old enough to remember having spittoons in the back of the seats in the shul. Amrle Rapopo the Rava, the Amrila Ravina the Rava, the Amrila Ravada Brahmano the Rava. Adiyolifiminao, Nailfimi Kapandra. How do you know that the proper correlation here is between shoes and spitting? Maybe the proper correlation is between shortcut and spitting. Because if you do that, then shortcut is restricted both on Harabayit and in Beit Knesset. If that's the case, then spitting should be restricted in both locations. 
The Mishnah learns it out from wearing shoes. And you want me to learn it out from making a shortcut? The Tanya. He may not go in with his staff in his hand. And not with his shoes on his feet. He may not go in with his money belt or the money tied into his tunic or his money belt hanging over his shoulder. And he may not make it into a shortcut. And one may not spit on our abide. That's a kava homer from wearing shoes. If you can't wear shoes, certainly can't spit. Wearing shoes is not considered to be something that is beyond the pale, something that's inappropriate. Amra Torah, Torah says, by the sneh, shal nalecha miyaraglecha. Take your shoes off. It's a makom kadosh, you have to remove your shoes. Rikika shi derech bizayon. Spitting, which is something that is inappropriate, unacceptable, or kosher cane that you can't do it there? If that's the case, then we see the correlation is between spitting and wearing of shoes. If that's the case, in the shul, it would be allowed. You don't need it. It says by Mordechai, this is when Mordechai is mourning the news that the Jews are going to be put to death. Esther does not have the information. Mordechai is approaching Shara Melech, but he doesn't enter the Shara Melech because he's in sackcloth. Why is that? Sometimes wearing sackcloth, that's not something that's disgusting. They play basavadam in front of other human beings. Kachrikigashi musai. See someone else spit, that's disgusting. It's just proper conduct. How can you spit before a Kodesh Baruch Hu? I made talking about here on Harabite, in the presence of the Shekhinah. This is what I want to say. Let us say that we go to Chumra in both cases. Harabite, where you cannot wear shoes. Learn it out from shoes. Aval beta knesset the shariminal ideal with me now or the hetter. Why are you learning it out from shoes? The hetter nail up me bekabanjo leasor. I'm not saying change the whole limud. I'm saying that you could have two different limudim. You could have a chumra by by harabai to connect the two wearing shoes, and we'll have a chumra by beta knesset by connecting it to the shortcut. So that nail up me kabanjo leasor el amarava ki beto. It's just like his house. Ma beto akabanjo akabinish arikiko minal lo kabinish. When it comes to your own private house, a person does not allow people to make shortcuts through his house. Nevertheless, they don't. They're not makpid if people wear shoes in their house. And they're not makpid if someone spits in their house. Ah, beta knesset. So too in beta knesset, the same conduct is demanded. That is, kapadje huda asur, rikiko menal ashori. Then it's, a shortcut is not allowed to a beta knesset, but spitting and menal wearing shoes is permitted within the beta knesset, unlike that which is uh, practiced on the beta mikdash. I just note here one thing. I won't, I won't explain it, but I just something, a food for thought over here, which is that the last time when I learned this many, many years ago, I learned this learning the Mishnayot and Brachot to my children. It happened to be right before Pesach. And the three things that one may not go on to Harabayit. What are the three things one may not go on to Harabayit with? Is a Maklobi Yado, Nalayim, Nalayim al-Raglav, shoes on his feet, and a money belt around. By the Korban of Pesach in Mitzrayim. What are the three requirements of the people eating the Korban Pesach in Mitzrayim? Makalcha biyadcha, ezorcha, bimadnecha, your belt is tied, and, and your shoes, nalecha biraglecha, the exact opposite. So there's obviously some correlation between the three things that in Migdash are not allowed, and are demanded inside of Mitzrayim. I have a lot to say about it, but I just wanted to point it out here for some food for thought, uh, that you could think about that, the correlation between those items. Okay, we'll stop here.